Footballers' Lives with Richard Lenton is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Welcome to episode three of Footballers' Lives. Now, I first met Andy Cole out in Singapore maybe seven years ago. He was playing in a Legends game at the indoor stadium and he absolutely bossed things from the middle of midfield. I've never seen him play there. And there were some serious players on show that day, but he really did stand out. I remember asking him some really bland questions afterwards, which he wasn't particularly impressed with. But hopefully the following 90 minutes are a wee bit more interesting. In fact, I can guarantee that Andy Cole was on fantastic form here. But it was in Asia, in Vietnam, a couple of years after I first met him, when Andy's life was thrown upside down after picking up a virus that ravaged his kidneys and ultimately led to him requiring a transplant in 2017. Now, I've spoken to him a few times in the past year or so. He's philosophical and positive and still a man who commands respect and isn't prepared to suffer fools gladly or otherwise. And you'll not be surprised to know he's still a man who's got an opinion or two on the game, the business and the various players and managers he's met along the way. This is Andy Cole's Football Life Story. I wanted to start off, you know, I know you've suffered more than most in lockdown, having to completely isolate. So how have the last few weeks been since you've been able to go out? Uh, you know, an, an appreciation of the world a little bit. I, I think that for me, and I'll I keep saying for me personally, I mean, having the lockdown and being locked away, I think it's given me a hell of a lot of time to go through a hell of a lot of things that I'll never ever have the time to even think about. You know, I think that for that uh, aspect was really good. Last month and a half has been, it was hard, really hard. That's when I wanted to get out and start doing things. And that's when your mind runs away with you a little bit more, you know, because that's when I actually, you're not, you're not normal anymore. Everyone start getting out and mingling a little bit, and I'm still stuck indoors. So that that was tough. Mm. That was really tough, and, and things like that. So yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I think since we came out of it, or when when we were doing the what, you know, you could go out once a day. I was going on bike rides to places that I've driven past loads of times. Yeah, and all of a sudden you notice new things. So I don't know. That that was just what. Yeah, it was, yeah it's strange, isn't it? Strange. Uh, I was going to take you back. Your parents moved over from Jamaica, I think, in the late 50s. I think I'm right. Yeah. I was just wondering, why did they go for Nottingham and what was life like growing up in Nottingham in the 70s and 80s? My, 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 my dad moved to, to Nottingham due to my mum. Okay. So, obviously, my mum came over with my granddad. So, they, naturally, they all landed in London first. But everyone gravitated for work. So as all the work obviously was no longer in London, everyone started to move further, further down the country, either go further south or go naturally to the Midlands or further north. So my understanding is it was all work related. Mm. So they come, my granddad came, he wasn't working in London. One of his mates, asked to try and survive, work here. He's moved down to Nottingham. Ended up staying there, obviously, with my mum. When my dad first came over, he was looking for work in, in London, which I believe he had a little bit of work, but then, obviously, my mum was in Nottingham. So that's when he's ended up going to Nottingham, you know, because my mum's there. So as, as, as they say, you know, young, young love, you know, my dad was in love. And, you know, him and my granddad weren't the best of friends. 
but he I mean he followed his dream and that was to be with my mum and that's how they ended up staying in Nottingham. Right. And was he a footballer then? And was that no. no? No, my dad my, my dad's got no no, he, no I'm not I'm not gonna say he's got no interest in football. He's he's got a little bit now. Yeah. But he's 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 a straight cricket man. Cricket. Um, yeah, loves the GGs as well, so yeah, that's it. So how did you get into football then? Because obviously it was the time of Brian Clough's all-conquering Nottingham Forest side. Were you really aware of that or were you looking at heroes a bit further afield? No, you know, football, I think, I'm not even sure how I got into it. I'm actually being born in England, you know. I, I, obviously, my dad has no footballing prowess. Um, I don't believe my granddad had any footballing prowess. So I'm, I'm not actually quite sure how I've turned out with his talent to play football. Um, you know, I, I think growing up in England, every kid's dream is to play football. And I, I don't believe I was any different to anybody else. Uh, so that's how I ended up playing football. Because it's every, every kid's dream to play football. You watch it on the TV and I want to play football, I want to play football. Um, and that's, yeah, that, that was the reason why. And I think at, at the time, my dad... Never understood it because coming from uh, Jamaica, where we was born, and coming to England, everything was about if I'm going to do a sport, I'm going to play cricket. I have to play cricket because his time was what we're going through now. His time was a hundred times worse coming here as a black man, you know, trying to get work and trying to sustain a family here. So I remember when I was growing up, I wanted to play football. You said me, it's not possible. It's not. It's not possible. You do. We don't play football. It's not possible. Because that was the mentality then, because obviously what they've been through. But you see, I, I say to people now, I get it. I understand it now. Then I say, no, Dad, man, come on, stop being stupid. Always just like arguing, fall out, and then I say, stop being stupid. Yeah. And you say, no, you, you can't play football. You know, you, you can't do it. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? But then I remember the first time I watched Test Match cricket, because I, I, I love my Test Match cricket. I'm with you, Dad. Mm. Was the 1984 series, the Blackwash series, and I could understand now, looking back, having knowledge and experience, how big that was for the West Indies. Yeah, yeah. It was sticking it up the English, so I can I can see where your dad dad was coming from. So you didn't you didn't bowl any? You weren't a fast bowler, a bat. No, I, I, I can do it. I can do it both. I could bat. I could bowl. And you know the the craziest thing is, uh, Michael sent me um, like a flyer. The other day, it was one of the Arsenal programs when I was a kid. Um, it was a cricket game with the Arsenal players playing against um, a local team. I was, I was just read it this morning. I've, I've got four wickets. And that, that's the greatest thing. Yeah, so I, I, I could play cricket. Um, not a problem. I, me, I remember I, I went to all the county trials to play for the county. And then when I got selected, I turned around and said, oh, I don't want to play now. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that's the kind of person I am. Well, in the old days, you were able to play professional cricket in the summers and football in the winters, but obviously, you know, you can't do that with a 24-7, 365 days a year. Yeah. Football is, you know. Um, but that, that was interesting. You're signing for Arsenal. Uh, 1988, after leaving school, I'm struggling to see how that came about with you being up in Nottingham. And were there, were there other options available? I, I, had quite, I had quite a few options. Uh, I don't not on trials. I went, I went to a few teams to go and train with. And I, I don't even know what, what it was about Arsenal. In, in, in the back of my mind, I was also saying myself that a lot of young players in the team. But in, in saying that, I was only 14 at the time when I, when I signed schoolboy. 
but it, it's just the way the two representatives spoke to me when, when they came down. Uh, came to my mum and dad's house, sat down with my mum and dad and spoke to my mum and dad and whatever. And like my dad also apparently he was just going over his head. You know, he's just sitting there nodding half the time. He not a clue. Um, my mum, she, she half like understood it, but I think my mum was, she was more worried about me going away. But late, later on, she was like saying, no, no, I, I think you need to go away now, the time's right. Yeah. So yeah, so when, when I did join Arsenal, it was just a case of, yeah, I, I like the way they spoke to me. And, you know, I, they seemed to have a plan for me going forward. Yeah. And... 1988, that year you signed, that was the year I watched Kevin Campbell play against Doncaster Rovers in the FA Youth Cup final. Yeah, yeah. He was like an absolute force of nature. So did you see him as a, as a role model and someone who you could see, someone to aspire to? And were you a little bit scared that that was the level you had to reach? Yeah, you, you must have been Googling me or something, Richard. I've been, when I was with Kev, Kev was one of my, he's one of my best mates. He, he was like an older brother to me when I was at Arsenal. And I remember watching him in the youth team. You know, he's getting goals for fun. And that year they won it, I actually played in one game. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, I played in one game. I can't remember. It was against the, uh, another boy who virtually played every game. He was the same age as me, a kid named Neil Heaney. Okay. Yeah, he, he, he played as well. Uh, but yeah, w- w- watching, watching Kev was like, he was phenomenal at those times. Mm. Yeah, well, of, of course I'm saying myself, yeah. Naturally, these are the levels I'm gonna have to get to to score goals in the youth team. Never mind the first team. Yeah. By the time I, I joined, um, Kevin's up in the reserves on the verge of the first team, and he was getting just as many goals in um, the reserve team as well. You were coming through, and your progress was pretty quick because it was December 1990, 29th of December. Arsenal against Sheffield United. How did you find out you were in that first team squad, that 13-man squad for the first? Uh, I, I found out it was Friday. Um, obviously being involved with the first team and then um, they put the list up in, in, in those days you used to have a list of what players were involved and I, I was involved so yeah naturally of course I was buzzing um, I think for any kid you, whatever club you sign for you want to play with the first team so when I got involved in that you know I was absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to do it yeah and coming on for Perry Grove what do you remember of your little cameo uh, at the time, getting on and looking around and naturally being nervous. I've played a hybrid before, of course, but never in front of so many people. So I was a bit nervous, but then it's just one of those ones. Just go and enjoy it. Yeah. Enjoy yeah. it like you're playing the youth team or reserves. Yeah. But I was wondering as well what the atmosphere was like around the club at that time, because I checked this and it was only 10 days before that that Tony Adams got banged up for drink driving, didn't he? So it was a, it was a weird time for the club. Yeah, it, it would have been. Um, so Tony was um, George's, as the boys used to say, then the son of. So um, Tony used to get away with quite quite a few things. Yeah. So yeah, no no doubt, everyone was disappointed at Arsenal then, but um, I wouldn't say he's brushed under the carpet uh, at a football club. He you just got to move on. Yeah. You got to continue to do what you've been doing. Yeah. Are you, are you philosophical now, the fact that you didn't get more chances at Arsenal, or do you think you should have done? I'll, I'll be brutally honest. And like I was then, I think I've been this all my life. I, I knew I should have played in Arsenal's first team a lot more games than I did play. Um, I knew I was more than good enough. You know, when you, you mentioned like Rosie, 
Um, I, I genuinely believe by the time I was 18, 19, I was as good as Perry. You know, but I, I, I used to let them know that as well. Mm. And in, in those days, it's back to, you know I mean, arrogant, chip on your shoulder. We, we, we weren't allowed to express ourselves or believe in our confidence. You know, so yeah, I, I look back with, and no, I'm not, no regret or anything. I'm more disappointment that the management staff weren't prepared to give me the opportunity to show that I could play at a level instead of saying, oh, it's arrogant, it's this, chipping my shoulder, all, all the same kind of nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How important then was it for you to leave Arsenal and have that spell at Bristol City? And how did you approach it as well? Were you thinking to yourself, I'm a top flight player, off with the lack of opportunity? Or were you just still that vibrant young kid who just wanted to get on with it and play football despite dropping down a level? I think at that time, I just wanted to play football because I it's not until later when I really started to understand what football was really about. Um, I remember before I even dropped down to play for Bristol, um, I was preparing for a game when I was on loan then. Pat Rice called me and he said to me, um, would you go to Derby? I said, would I go to Derby? So I said, um, is George prepared to sell me? He said to me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you. And I'm talking over 30 years. I've, I've still not heard back from that phone call. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I think once Pat Rice called me to say that, I knew they were going to sell me. So, moving to Bristol, I was I had this determination that I was going to prove everyone wrong at Arsenal. So, I wasn't even fussed about going backwards. I was just saying to myself, I'm going to prove every single person at this football club wrong. Yeah, that I, I should have been playing Arsenal's first team. But you get all that nonsense as well when you leave, especially in those days. The young player and you leave, he goes, oh, yeah, he was this, he was that, he was this. But when you're there, no one says anything. Yeah. As soon as you leave, like, oh, yeah, that, we got rid of him because X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I was speaking to uh, Steve Paul about six months ago. And he was saying that when, when Arsenal sold me, him, Lee Dixon, Tony Adams, said to George, you're crazy. Absolutely crazy. Should never ever have sold him. He would play in his first team and score goals. And then, not too long ago, I spoke to Wright, and Wright said the same thing. And he spoke. To, he said he could speak to Jordi Armstrong, who's no longer with him. And Jordi Armstrong said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got rid of him because we don't believe he would score more than ten goals in the Premier League." <laughs> what was it? You know, Seven in the end. Well, well, there you go. So everyone's always got these opinions of you, but when you're actually in front of them, no one comes out and gives you that opinion until you're leaving. You can't actually face them up. Mm. You know, and that, that's what I, I found funny about football later on as I got older and started to understand it more. Yeah. Did you ever speak to George Graham many years later? Maybe I've, I've, all against him or? I've never, ever spoke to George like that. Wow. <laughs> George would come out of a comment like saying, oh, we knew he was going to do it. Well, if you knew he was going to do it, you don't sell an individual, you know he's going to do it. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those ones. Yeah, almost like saying, I was doing you a favour, you know, giving yeah. you a chance to do that. Oh, dear me. Football, you know, the more you talk about it, the, the stranger the little machinations are of what goes on. Exactly. Yeah, but Bristol City, I mean, you did show everyone what, uh, what you could do. You scored a lot of goals. And then how did Kevin Keegan sell Newcastle to you? February 93. Uh, I, I had this conversation the other day as well. You know, I speak to Kevin, it was massively, it was fantastic speaking to him. You know, everyone loved Kevin, everyone knew what Kevin was about as a player. 
you know, um, playing for Newcastle, Newcastle legend, and he loved the place. But what's wrong for me with my relationship with Lee Clark? You know, he was a Geordie boy, he loved Newcastle. I've I played with him many times for England and, and things like that. So he used to say, well, come on, Coley, um, you'll have a great time here. You know, you'll score goals, you'll love it up there. I look after him. The fans, the fans are absolutely lovely scoring goals. And I was, I was a bit worried. I was a bit worried because um, Newcastle was a long, long way. Mm. It was a long, long way. And I remember asking where Newcastle was. Mm. You know, I said it's a long way. And I was obviously I was living in Bristol as well as London at the time, so I was, I was up and down the road. So I've, I've been used to that since I was like sixteen. Mm. You know, well, from 14 onwards, really, up and down from London and then full-time from then. So I was kind of like settled in London. Mm. And I said to myself, man, I'm not sure I can go all the way to Newcastle. Yeah. Newcastle to Bristol, Newcastle to London's a long, long way. Yeah. So Clarkie, Clarkie really settled it for me. And I, I said, I'll give it a go. Well, you can fly off to the Algarve quicker than you could to get to Newcastle. Could you? There you go. <laughs> uh, but you scored a couple of hat-tricks towards the end of that season. Did your life change immediately? Was it that kind of goldfish bowl existence straight away? Or could you still pop for a pint of milk? Yeah, it, it was. If I was older, I, I genuinely believe I would be able to handle it a lot better. But yeah, I think Newcastle would be that... Um, one sixteen. You know, the, the, the punters absolutely adore you. you. You do it out there, they absolutely adore you. And being a, like Newcastle number nine as well, the goal scorer and scoring those parts. But it was tough. It was tough in, in a good way if I knew how to handle it at such a young age, but I didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. So ultimately, the fans never leave you alone. You go to the yeah. supermarket, they don't leave you alone. You know, even if you went to the pub, you never have to buy a drink, and he went on and on and on. I, I, I couldn't get my head around it. You know, obviously coming from Bristol City, where it's nice, it's calm. Being in London, you can hide because no one really knew I was. So that that was nice. Yeah. That was really, really nice. And then going from that, the rise I had from obviously leaving Arsenal, going to Bristol City, going to Newcastle was, was huge. But everyone's intentions would have been so positive, but I can understand how it must have felt so claustrophobic. Yeah, but very much so. I always say, I'm, I'm not into razzmatazz. You know, I'm, I'm there to play football. I play football, I'll go home, I'll go for dinner with my mates and we'll have a few drinks and that's me done. You know, it's so all the razzmatazz. No, 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 that's not my cup of tea. So when everyone is, oh, he's miserable, I'm, like, no, I'm not miserable. That is not me. You know, you can adore me as much as you like when I'm playing football. That's, that's fine. But once you come away from that, I must have the opportunity to switch off. And when people don't understand that and tell us, oh, I pay your wages, or oh, you should do this. Not a case I should be doing anything. I should be enjoying myself just like you are. Mm. You know, but you can't switch off from football whereby I want to switch off. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining you went into that first Premier League season still with a little bit of that I'll prove you wrong mentality with George Graham and you were super confident you'd been scoring goals. Did you have any doubts whatsoever that you could cut it in the Premier League? Uh, yeah, when, when you first got into the Premier League, um, yeah, but I've never been at that level before and there's quite a few of the boys who've never played at that level before. So naturally, it's not like this is a championship now. Uh, division, I mean, Division 2 then. No, Division 1, sorry. 
back then. Yeah, you go in there, you're curious, you're a little bit wide that, hmm, it's a bit different, this is going to be, because this is the creme de creme now. Mm. Well, once I got up and running, I got my first goal in there. I, I never really thought about it. I always say, when I was at Newcastle, I, I played at Newcastle, I was playing football with my mates in the park. I wasn't fussed about it, never really thought about anything, go out there, do what you got to do. Mm. I mean, get showered, travel back on the coach with the boys, go home or go out with my mates. So that's, that, that was just the way I looked at it. Mm. Um, I mean, people might tell me, I say, oh yeah, he's, a, he's anti-social. I wasn't anti-social at all. I was mm. just looking at, well, this is something that I love, I'm really enjoying it, but if I'm going to come away from you, I want to be with the people that I really know, which are my mates, and they understand me. Mm. I know my mates every time I say, oh, he's anti-social. I mean, he just said, that's the way he is, and he's not a problem. Brilliant first season back, 34 goals, came completely out of the blue to people who've not seen your journey before. How important were two key factors that I, I saw? Peter Beardsley, that partnership, and also the way Kevin Keegan approached the game of football, quite innocent in a way. Yeah, Peter was one of the best players I played with. Um, football intelligence, um, he had everything, he had everything in abundance. He's thinking about you listen to all these people talk about all these players now. You tell us that Peter Beard was in that many years ago. So I'm I'm not I'm not really into what people say about certain players now. So oh, I did come on man, this guy was doing this over 30 years ago. 30 years this guy was doing exactly the same thing people are raving about now. That's I, I look at Peter Beat was obviously before his time. You know, there's some of the stuff you talk people talk about in between the lines, getting on the arm turn. People was doing that in his dreams. Mm. You know, that's how good a player he was. So that, that was, for me, that was football education, playing with him. I learned a hell of a lot off mm. him. Regarding Kevin, I, I can't complain. Kevin built that team around me. Mm. It was basically, he brought players for me, scored as many goals as possible. Now, I'm not sure how many managers would do that nowadays, you know, by all these individuals, one individual to get as many goals as possible. But that was Kevin's mind for it. You know, if you create chances for me, I'll, I'll score your goals. And, you know, we'll propel ourselves up in the league. Yeah. Did Kevin know that you were struggling with the claustrophobia at Newcastle? Because there were one or two rumours that you were thinking about leaving in the summer of 94. Yeah, Ke Kevin knew. Kevin knew. But because Kevin, Kevin's persona is like, come on, yeah. It's, it, as you call him, the Messiah. Come on, all the, yeah, all the fans, yeah, come on. Come to training, yeah. You can come to training four days a week if you want. There could be like three, four thousand people at training. You know, so Kevin wanted to get all the fans on side. What Kevin didn't understand, or didn't want to understand, everyone's not like Kevin. Mm. You know, I mean, we've all got different characters for a reason. Whereby Kevin said, yeah, more, 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 more. I'm saying that now, less, 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 less. You know, so um, that, that was difficult. He, he always used to say, you have to sell yourself to the fans. And, yeah. and I said, no, 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 I don't need to sell myself to anyone. You know, I, I play football, that's what I do. Once I leave at quarter five or whatever, if I've made them happy, I'm more than happy. Let me go and do what I'm going to do now. So, yeah. so, so that that was that. that. That was that. To be fair, when you say out oh, talking me leaving, you was talking me going to Tottenham, and I, I, I kept saying no, no, no. The only the only club I'd leave Newcastle for is to go to Man United. I always want to play for Man United. So I I, I knew when they're saying oh, Tottenham are paying a five million pound beer and all that. I knew, I knew they could pay whatever bid they wanted to bid, you know. To move back to London at that time, yeah, it would be lovely. I mean, but I, 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 I had uh, bigger thoughts 
yeah. moving back to London and, and uh, going to Tottenham. Because I looked at Newcastle then, it's the money they was pumping into the football club and bringing better players. They had a chance of winning something. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. So how should Kevin Keegan, the club, yourself, have handled that January 1995 move to Manchester United? Because there were loads of rumours that subsequently came out that you were disrupting training. You'd not gone in for a couple of days. Was it all the usual football nonsense? Yes. Yeah, that, that was definitely the football nonsense. The only time I, I, I never went in there was when uh, me and Kevin had a fallout and he told me to do one. Yeah, so I said, didn't mind, not a problem. I'd do one because I'm not having anyone talk to me like that. So I, I mean, went back to my room, got showered, got changed, packed my bag and, and left the hotel. And uh, Newcastle want to play... It was Wimbledon in the League Cup on the Tuesday, and this happened on Monday, and I just left. Yeah, I went missing for about three, four days. And that, that was really the, the end of the relationship between me and Kevin. You know, because Kev, Kevin, Kevin never forgot that. Even if I went back and, you know, continued to score goals, sign a new contract. I look back now, and that was the end of the relationship, because Kevin was never the same after that. Mm. You know, not, not towards me anyway. You know, he might say, oh, no, no, Cody, I was exactly the same. He, he wasn't, and I, I, I understood. Are you okay with him now? Do you ever see him? Or Yeah, me, me and him are fine. Me, yeah. me and him are fine. You know, we, we have a laugh about what well, he has a laugh about. It. You know, and turns around and says to me, do you understand why I did it now? And sold you to become a better player. And, I mean, look, look what you've ended up winning and all those kind of... So, yeah, you know, I'll take you on the gym. You're always going to fall out with your managers. Uh, it just depends on how your manager perceives it in the long term. Yeah. So how did the move to Man United come about? I'm, I'm assuming it's the era of being tapped up a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't even that. I've got to be brutally honest with you. Um, I remember my time in Newcastle, I used to speak to Winch a lot when I was in the England squad. And then he always used to say, oh, the manager fancies you, yeah, he really wants to come or whatever. Why would you say to Winch? He goes, not a chance. Absolutely no chance. You think Kevin's going to sell me? Especially for Man United as well. We managed to new cars to try and close the gap on. You know, so I said, it's never going to happen. So when it did happen, no one tapped me out. And I mean, no one tapped me out. Banger between me and Nancy to call me and whatever. But that was about it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's no like, oh, Sir Alex Ferguson called me at such No, that didn't happen. I, I never spoke to Sir Alex Ferguson until the Monday of the deal when I found out when I was driving out to Manchester. That was mm-hmm. the first time I spoke to him. And you obviously went there with a huge reputation, but was it still quite daunting going into a club like that? You know, yeah, it, it, it was daunting. Everyone fails to understand. You know, I'd only been in the Premier League a year and a half, playing for Newcastle and playing with my mates on the park. Going to Man United at the time, I didn't know what to expect. Man United, I've been watching those players play. I watched them on, the, for instance, a Monday night. In the league, I mean, sorry, the FA Cup against Sheffield United. I've been watching them for many, many years before that when I was in the Championship in Newcastle. And then years before that, and all of a sudden, two years later, yeah, I'm actually playing with these guys that I love watching, always want to play with. And it, it was a surreal moment to know that I've, I've gone so far so quickly. Mm. I just, I'm not sure how many people now, if you look around in football within a year and a half in the, in the Premier League end up playing for one of the biggest clubs in the world, if not the biggest club in the world. It, it, it doesn't really happen that quick. 
you know. So I'm, and I never even had time to take it all in, you know. And, I was, and that's why I was a bit nervous when I went there. Yeah. But did you feel straight away that there was a bit more freedom in a city like Manchester, where you can live maybe more of a so-called normal life? Was it was a weight coming off your shoulders? Yeah, but very much so. Uh, very much so. Cosmopolitan plays. I mean, basically, just get on with things. And that, that's, that's what I, I, I like. You know, is I'm, I've always been an individual. If, I, if I'm busy, I always want to go out in high, not on high, but just be a normal civilian. You know, not worried about people saying, oh, that's, just get on with life. Because ultimately, all we are is normal people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, very different and much lower level. But when I was presenting football in Singapore, the TV guys would want me to be taking selfies and pictures all the time and posting on social media. And I was like, I never did this when I was driving a forklift truck around a warehouse. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't like that either. But you had a strange start to your Manchester career in many ways because Stellar's Park came along. I mean, did Eric Cantona do what countless players have wanted to do over the years? I, I, I would say so. I would say, looking back now, I would say so. If you look at, or well, you are sending professional players at the highest level, how many times they've gone through dogs' abuse yeah, and would really like to leave it on someone, but they can't. Mm. You no, know, I think every player would say that. So Eric ended up, ended up doing that, and I think you look at it in terms of yourself, yeah, would I have liked to have done that at some stage as well? Uh, it was strange, very, very strange. But it happened, it happened within the first couple of months of me being at Manchester United. Oh, right, what is this? But I, naturally, I, I didn't quite understand what was going on here. <laughs> and you, you started well. You scored a dozen goals, I think, in the first uh, 17 games. But then you come to Upton Park, Man United can win the league. You missed a few chances. Did it feel like you were hung out to dry? And did you feel isolated by that? Because there was a lot of criticism about one single performance. I, I, I did. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, very, very much so. There was so much going on in, in, in the background as well. Uh, my first child was born, and I was getting like I was getting in in, in my um, hero from my ex partner. I mean, oh, I, I I can't believe that you you chose to play football and be at the birth of your first child and things like that. So I, I had that in the background. I, I didn't actually choose to do that. You know, I was there with you up until the Wednesday morning. I flew back to Manchester, you know, the Wednesday afternoon, and played the Wednesday night. You know, within that time, by the time I got to Manchester, she'd had the baby. But I was there like from I think it was a Sunday or whatever. You know, so I, I was there all the time. Unfortunately, my boy decided when he wanted to come, I can't force that issue. So I, I, I had that in, in getting like a load of rubbish in my head, and then. Upton Park comes and, you know, Ludo Macrosco played the best game ever, produces saves out of nowhere. And we've ended up drawing the game and losing the league. And I, I was, I was bitterly disappointed. I, I'll be honest, I've said it many times. I, I felt like I actually let my teammates down, the club down, because I, I thought that May United had brought me in to, like, finish that job off that season. And for me, I, I felt like I, I let them down. Yeah. And, did it feel like there was a bit of a hangover going into the following season for you as well? And did it all seem to be about the imminent turn of Cantona? And was part of you thinking, hang on a minute, I'm here as well, you know? No, you know, I, I, 
things like that never ever bothered me. Um, I've always said I'm, I'm a team player. I'm, I'm a small cog in that in that team. You know, so whoever's perceived to have a big name or whatever, hey man, let's roll with it. So long we all want the same thing. So long we all want want to win. I'm not really too fussed about anything else. So when when Eric came back, I think I was as excited as anybody else. Yeah, and it all turned out well with that first league title. Did you feel like you were becoming more of a rounded player rather than just that kid who was playing at Newcastle, if you like, who was just playing for fun with his mates? If you... Yeah, as, 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 as time grew and I spent more time at Old Trafford, yeah, I believe that I've become a better player. So I remember um, Brian Kidd saying to me, uh, if you think scoring four to one goal is going to be good now that Manchester United, you're wrong. And I said to myself, this guy's talking nonsense. No, he wasn't talking nonsense. He was talking the truth. And he took me that to realise, and you know, a few more years after that, to realise what Manchester United was all about. Yeah. But then, unfortunately, the following season, you encountered Razor Ruddock in a reserve team game. First of all, mm. why were you playing in the reserves? And was it, I mean, I've no idea, was it a really appalling tackle or was it one of those things? Uh, why was I playing? Because I, I was coming off an illness, I believe, and mm. I, hadn't, I hadn't had many minutes in the first team. So in those days, uh, the manager wanted you to play minutes in the reserves and try and get a little bit of sharpness and whatever. So I, in the end, I've, I've turned out, I've, I've played, and you know I'm just trying to do what I do best. You know, play well and make a goal in the reserves and try to get myself in contention for the first team. You know, and I, I remember it. I remember the tackle. It was, it was a shocker. You know, he, he had he had absolutely no chance of getting the ball. So it was just a crude lunge, mm. you know. And I, I remember I heard a little crack. Oh, man, come on, man up, get up, get up, and try and run it off. And I remember getting up on my feet and trying to jog on that. I said, "No, nah, this is not quite happening." But I still tried, and in the end, I had to come off. Uh, went for a couple of X-rays and that, and then they, they realised that um, I, I, I broke, I broke my bone. And it, I, it, it was one of those where I, I was disappointed because I said, I'm, I'm trying to get back in the first team, try to get back in the contention. I've been out with an illness that, that pre-season. I mean, it was either bronchitis or pneumonia I had. And I was, all I was trying to do is get myself back fit in that. And I, and I thought about it then. I said to myself, look, because I was going for a sticky time there anyway. I mean, not getting goals and not being in the first team. And I said to myself during that rehab season, I mean, during the rehab, so that if I don't come back after this injury and if I don't get myself fit and start being who I am, I'm not going to cut it at Manchester United. And that's why I said to myself, I will not, I will not cut it unless I come at this injury a hell of a lot stronger mentally, physically, and decide that just I'll go back to basics and start being new. Well, yeah, psychologically, coming back from injuries like that must be really tough. And then... United have signed Dwight York. People were saying to potentially replace you, but then you get an opportunity to partner him and never really look back. Why did it click so well between you and Dwight? Well, it, it clicked because we were polar opposites. And it's, it's, it's one of those ones, I was speaking about this the other day as well, it's one of those ones. It's two people who are not even supposed to get on. Because we are so opposite, people actually would turn around and say, well, why do you two get on so well? You're not alike at all. No, we're not. But we understand each other. 
And once you have that understanding, you know, that, that's, the, that's the way it should be. And I sum it up now, it's, it's, like, it's, that, it's like that life partner you come across. You, come across, you might come across an individual in life, and you say, yeah, that individual is for me. You not, might not talk all the time or whatever, but you know at any stage that individual is the right individual for you. And that, and that, that that's me and Dwight. So it was perfect, even if it was never meant to be. You know, I think if Kyber not gone to Boston and come to Manchester United, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been there. But me and Dwight, you know, it, it was, and I say it was sent from the heavens. It was, it was just meant to be. And how much of it was kind of natural telepathy? And how much of it was really hard work working together on the training? All of it was all natural. We never worked on anything. I mean, the only, the only time me and Dwight worked on anything was finishing. Hmm. Otherwise, nothing at all. We didn't do anything. We never played on the same team in training. Nothing like that. Yeah, bad. Well, let's go on to the treble winning season. Did that Champions League semi-final win against Juventus typify everything that United were Hundred percent, hundred percent. I think throughout my career, you know, and I've been in a few games. That's the best footballing match I've ever been involved in. Mm. You know, it, man, phenomenal, phenomenal football match. Two fantastic teams, knowing what they're playing for. But man, did, did we play so well that evening? It's it a game I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah. Well, Roy Keane was like my modern day football hero if you like Brian Robson was my first football hero and that was an astonishing performance you did what you had to do you scored the goals and then you must have been disappointed to be rested for that Spurs game you know a win would have won you the league but... rested I'm disappointed I was dropped <laughs> uh, yeah I, I remember I, was, I called the manager I was disappointed as well and the manager told me I don't care if you're disappointed I'm playing so it, it was one of those ones um but yeah, I, I, I was disappointed, but it's a team game. You know, the, the boys have done well, Oli have done well, Teddy have done well. So when, when the manager left me out, yeah, well, of course I'm devastated that, that I was left out, but I come out at half time, I was fortunate enough to get the winner. Uh, and that, that for me, and I've, I've said it and I will continue to say, it, that made me feel a hell of a lot better in 95 than when I did. Sorry, in '99 when I did it in '95, mm. you know when I was unfortunate, unfortunate not to win the league then. Yeah. You know, a little bit later on in life, you know, I, I get the winner against Tottenham. We got to win the treble. So as I say, in, in footballing terms, you know, well in life terms, life's a circle. Yeah, you know, you always come back to the same point. Laid some demons to rest. I can't imagine what it's like back in pre-season, etc. After a season like the treble winning 1999 season. What, what on earth can Ferguson say to try and get you to all go again? Or was it just within that Manchester United DNA to carry on? You have to. You, you have no option. That's why you're at that club. Hmm. I mean, you, you can't. We, we, we always used to say at Manchester United, yeah? you don't have a weekend off. No, this football club. There's no weekend off. So if you're playing Arsenal this week, yeah, and you're playing Bolton next week. Bolton are going to play like Arsenal did the week before. Yeah. Norwich will play like Arsenal the week before, or Chelsea, or whatever it is. So there was no weekend off because everyone wanted to beat Manchester United. So yeah. we always knew we had to be in tip-top condition to win those games. And that's what I love more than anything, because you yeah. knew 
whoever it was won the Reeves game against Manchester United. Yeah, and you still won plenty more trophies there, but then Ruben Nistelrooy came along. You'd had challenges for your place before, but this time, did you think I might be fighting a losing battle, or did Ferguson say something to you, or did you feel like your time had come to an end? Yeah, I, I felt like I was going to be fighting a losing battle. The manager wanted to play a different system in Europe, and when you have trouble, I mean, of course, you want to play against the best European teams. Well, that's what it's about. So, not not playing on the weekend against, not being disrespectful. A Wigan or a Bolton and get yourself a hat trick, and then you've got Real Madrid on a Tuesday or Wednesday night in the Champions League, and then you've got me on the bench. And that's, that, that's not a nice feeling, and that's that's where I was at. And the, the manager was really, really good, and I've said this many times. Well, the manager was brilliant with me, and I remember I, I kept saying to him, I need to move on, I need to move on, I want to try to get the World Cup squad as well. And he kept saying to me, No, nah, I'm not selling you, I'm not selling you. He said, You can make as many noises as you like. I will not be selling you. He said, you'll get your games. You will get your games and you will get yourself in a World Cup score you'll get your games. But I'm, I'm an individual that I have to look at myself and turn around and say to you, if I'm not giving you 100%, I'm giving you nothing. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's my mentality. I actually feel like I'm stealing a living. Mm. And that's why I kept saying to the boss, I said, no. He kept saying, no, no, no. And then one day he said, no, okay, Oli, I know what you like. I know you want to play. Yeah. I know you're not an individual who wants to sit around and kick your heels and that. Mm. I'll sell you. And it was like that. And he said, you can stay as long as you want. I've had like three years left in my contract. He basically said, you can stay as long as you want. So he never forced me. It was one of those ones when he came and said, Cole, I've got an offer for you. I'm going to sell you. Mm. Mine was totally, totally different. And you were pretty much at the peak of your powers as an all-round player. I think you were only 30. So were there yeah. on the table apart from Blackburn? And was Blackburn more of a, a geographical choice? At, at that time, yeah. At that time. But looking at it now, I think I was like kind of like shoehorned in, into it as well. You know, uh, the guy who represented me at the time had a comfortable relationship there. And he's like, yeah, do you really want to move at the moment? And I said, well, not really. The kids were, were young at school. Uh, my son was playing football as well. I was saying myself, do I actually want to dis- disrupt all that? So I was kind of like shoehorned into it. But even if even if I was shoehorned into it, I enjoyed being at Blackburn. He's a nice, proper football club. You know? So I enjoyed my time there. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, shit, I wish I'd never gone. No, no, I, I really enjoyed my time there. It was a real, real nice football. Yeah, and our mutual friend Craig Short said that you give that gave that dressing room a massive lift because they were struggling in the league as well. So swapping, chasing trophies for a relegation battle must have been very different. Very, very different. I, man, I, I've, I've not played football like that since I was at Bristol City. You know, when, when they were fighting to stay up. And when I went in there, you know, the, the, the boys had quality. You know, I don't know if there's lacking a little bit of confidence at the time, but that's some real good players there, you know, two guy in midfield and that. That's some good players. Um, I went there and I realised straight away, yeah, it's different. Training's different. Uh, just the way they prepare themselves is different. So mentally, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with, like, actually dropping down a few levels here. When you're up here and everything's done, you're prepared, right, and you come... It's different. So that, that took me a little bit of time to get used to as well. 
but like I said, the boys were really, really good. Mm. These solid set of boys who wanted to try and do the best they could to achieve that one in the league. Yeah, and despite everything, you'd won at United. How special was that 2001 League Cup win for what it meant to that football club in that town? Well, for me personally, it, I, I was absolutely buzzing with it, absolutely delighted, due to the fact that was the only thing I'd never won. You know, my time at Manchester United, the, the manager who used to play the kids and that, he didn't really look at, look at the League Cup as one of his priorities. And I remember you saying, come on, come on, boss, I need a play. You said, no, I don't want to play in the League Cup. And I said, no, I want, I want to win this. I want to win it. You know, he said, no, I'll give the kids an opportunity. And that. So when I went to Blackburn, you know, I was in Cup tie. I hadn't played in the League Cup. And then Blackburn going to win it. I, I, was, I was delighted. Not just on a personal level, but the Blackburn, Blackburn itself, you know that we've gone on to win the League Cup. No, no one actually fancied Blackburn against Tottenham that afternoon. No, not at all. And then your old mate Dwight York turned up that summer. But why do you think it didn't quite work out the second time? Um, well, I, I can be honest. I, I said, I said to York, I, I did you a disservice. I mean, I, I shouldn't entice him to come, uh, but. I, on, 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 a, on a selfish level, I, I wanted him to come because he was my good mate and I, I knew, you know, he could stimulate me and like, we can still do what we used to do at Manchester United. And, I mean, we, we were good friends anyway. Uh, why did it not work out? Man, obviously, Blackburn didn't play like Manchester United. Um, that, was, that was a big factor. Mm. Um, it was a lot harder, a lot harder to get goals and you know, um, and things like that. But that, that's what happens in football. That's where you become a better player. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you, you, you move to different clubs and then you realise why certain clubs are where they are and certain clubs are where they are. You know, yeah. the, the difference then in the Premier League, uh, Manchester United, Blackburn. You know, one day going on to win the title, Man United will fight for the title. Blackburn try to stay up in the division. So that tells you straight away. So it, it, it was harder playing, well, not harder. I, I thought for me personally, it was a good experience playing with players of uh, lesser ability due to the fact that I thought I, I could help them even more. Yeah. And which I, which I, I, I enjoyed doing as well. And because it was harder, I suppose the pressure would have built. And do you think that's why things kind of went downhill a little bit? Because I know that you were very positive about. Graham Sooners, you know, before you signed. What what kind of led to the to the downfall there? Um, I, see, what, what led, to, led to the downfall for me was um, Graham. Graham as a manager, Graham as an individual then. Graham, I am going to dominate you. And I used to say, no, nah, no. Nah. My dad couldn't dominate me when I was a kid. So there's no way I'm at this age in my life now. And I'm going back to when I was like 14 years of age. Yeah. And I'm arguing with my dad and things like that. And now I'm early 30s, early to mid 30s. And you're trying to talk to me like a little kid. Nah, it can't work. So straight away there's a personality clash. I mean, I'm, I'm quiet, but I'm stubborn and I'm very strong-minded. And I was, I'll tell you what time it is. And Graham did like that. Graham thought he could intimidate and like, I, I, you do this and you do that. I said, no, no, I won't. I mean, I'm an experienced pro. I've achieved in the game. Yeah, and I don't like bullets. 
I'm not like bullies when I was a kid. So I don't like bullies now. So you ain't going to bully me into a position whereby you, you, get, you get the better of me. So we was just clashing all the time. So I, 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 I mentioned it to Short the other day, and he was laughing. And I always said to Graham, don't play in the games. Yeah? Not being disrespectful, you're too old to be playing in the games now. Bring him one of the kids to train, and then he's got an experience where he's learning with the first team. But Graham was adamant that he, he didn't want to do that. So one day we're training, and we're in the box here, then a little bit of one touch, in there, and he tried to get me in the box by leaving the, the ball short. So I said, no, no, I, I can't have this no more. Then this has been going on for months, and the mist just descended on me. So I started walking over to him and saying, well, we might as well just settle this now, we might as well settle the straight now. So I started walking over to him, he's walking over to me, and then all the lads have grabbed me, and I'm saying, so why is everyone grabbing me? You know, and they said, no, Cody, Cody, no, Cody, leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. I said, no, I can't leave it now because I've left it too long. And the more market goes in, the more market goes straight, straight, straight. And that, that day, everything came out. And I, I just want to have a tear up to settle it, you know, win, lose or draw, it didn't matter to me. Let me just get my frustrations out on this guy. And then whatever happens after that happens. So actually, that, that didn't happen. He, he left me out of the team. Um, quite a few times after that, didn't really speak to him. Want me to apologise? I wouldn't apologise. He wanted me to say like, "I apologise. I'm sorry to." So I used every word which didn't have sorry or apologise in it to make this apology. So I used to skirt around everything. And even the guy representing me said, "No, you can't." I said, "I'll do what I want to do." Because if they want to sit in this, going to sit in I'm not holding really fast. So the relationship couldn't be repaired. Um, I remember one afternoon. One evening, I was at home and I, I called John Williams. I, I, I said to John Williams, John, I, I have to apologise, but there's no way this relationship can be repaired. I think in ultimately, in the end, you will have to sack me. There's, there's no way I can repair this relationship with Graham and be most we're going to end up coming to blows. So you have to make the decision now. You, not Graham, you have to make the decision if you want to sack me later on. Or you're going to turn around and say, okay, you did the right thing. You just let Cody go on a free transfer. He'll get on with his career and, you know, we're trying to keep a happy camp here. I generally didn't know that story. I knew the story about him trying to break Dwight York's leg in training. Was that true? Yeah, that, that one was true as well. Mm. You know, like, like I say, with, with York, York is the most placid man in the world. I've never, ever seen Dwight get angry until that day. And that's, that's a great thing. He used to laugh at me because every now and then I used to blow my top and he used to laugh at me. You know? But I'd never seen him lose his temper and that was the only day I seen him lose his temper. You know, and I said to myself, he's pushed my help really, really far for him to lose his temper. Because I, I know the wife so well. And I said to myself, when Graham did that saffron, I thought, oh, yo. And then when Yorkie did it on him, I thought, yeah, Yorkie's very upset now, really upset. I mean, he, he just wanted, he would just turn around and said, come on, let's keep playing. Let's, let's get on with it. So when he said that, I knew, I knew that uh, this York has lost the plot here. It's coming on top. So that relationship, just finally, is that relationship like with Kevin Keegan where you're okay now? Or is that one that was definitely... So, yeah, you know, I, I am so stubborn. 
Yeah, even, even my auntie keeps saying to me, you are so hard-headed. Yeah, and I turn around and say, dude, that's, I mean, that's, that's heritage. That, that has come from someone in my background whereby I've taken something from them which has made me so stubborn whereby I've cut my nose off to spite, spite my face. Graham, who is testament, I see him about four years ago. We was in the same hotel, we was working for the same company. And I come out and lift, and he said, be cold if you never work with you. So I'm, I'm straight away, I'm on my toes here. I'm on my toes straight away. I mean, that's, that's just the way you grow up. You've got to be on your toes. And he said, no, I'd, I'd like to apologize to you for my behavior when I was a manager. That wasn't me and whatever. And I was like, wow, that, that takes a man to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm being brutal. That takes a man to do that. Sometimes I ask myself, and I'm like, you should apologize. I turn around and say, you can't apologize to no one, but the good side of it is, come on, apologize. And I'm trusting with myself. So when Graham done, I thought, wow. And then I think last, last year I was at an award. Sure, and he was there. He spoke very highly of, of me when he was uh, going to present the award. And then his wife apologized to me. And I, I'm saying to myself, oh my God. I have to take my hat off to people and I can only learn from people like that. You know, to when I do find myself in that position, I can turn around and say, no, oh, forget about it. You know, I apologize and move on and we do what we're doing. You know, I, I think that, 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 that takes a real man to do that. I, I love that story. I didn't know about that. I think it's great that, you know, you're able to kind of bury the hatchet, both of you, because football is quite a small community. Yeah, is at the level that you and Graham have reached, you are going to end up seeing each other, whether it's in the media, award ceremonies, and all the rest of it. Um, I wasn't going to mention Teddy Sheringham, but I read that you'd you'd done something similar there, and at least just had a handshake and said, "Move on." So is that is that you also, you know, having more of a sense of your own mortality these days with what's happened to you? Yeah, I think I've I got to that stage whereby I'm. I'm comfortable, you know, I'm growing up. And I, I know what I am. I know what I am. I know I'm stubborn. I know certain things, people do certain things to me. I hold it and I will, I will hold it against you. If, if we don't settle it, like we should settle it, I'll hold it against you. If you don't apologize to me or I don't apologize to you, there's only other, one more, other way you can actually sort it out. Mm. And that, that's, that's the way I look at things from when I was a kid and that's why I'm growing up, you know. But then, that evening, I, I, I was out. I was out. I was having a good night, and you know, I saw him. And oh, he's when when he ever sees me, like, I know he's always treading on eggshells, you know, because he he doesn't know what's happening. If, if he's not, we're not in a footballing fraternity, but eggshell kind of thing. And I remember I I, I just come out of it. And I'm, 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 I must have had one too many. I just come out of it and said, look, let bygones be bygones, move on or whatever. Did it make me feel better? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I've said myself, you're too old for that now. Mm. You're too old. When I was younger, yeah. Hey, it's totally different. But now, come on, man, you're too old, old to hold those kind of grudges. You know, so I, I, I moved on. But the certain grudges that I know, I'll never move on from the certain things that will always stay with me. Right. Okay. I, won't, I certainly won't delve into that. But looking at the final few years of your career. I remember you having a decent season at Fulham. And then how come you went to Man City of all teams? Uh, I, I, I left Fulham. And this, this is crazy. 
at, at, at that time, you know, I'd, I'd moved back to London, obviously, for very, very full on. And the whole objective then with my ex-partner was once the kid got to a certain age, once my son finished school, yeah, we'd move back to London. Yeah. Continue our life. The one they'd be up north, he'd be doing his thing. And then we'd take the youngies and move back to London. So I'd moved, I'd moved back to London with Fulham. And I kept saying, right, let's do it now. Let's do it now. I'm back in London, back in Fulham, whatever. And then she turned around and changed her mind and said, no, 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 no. Not going to do it, not going to do it. Uh, we have to let the youngies finish school first. Well, I was saying to myself, what's the ideal opportunity now? It's not going to uh, interrupt her schooling because she's only young. On the flip side, she gets saying, no, she's going to interrupt her schooling. I said to myself, it's not. You know, kids are so adaptable, especially at that age. So I ended up going being at Fulham for about a year. And I kept saying, no, I'm missing my kids too much. You know? I miss not being around them every day and whatever. So I made a decision. I said to myself, I, I need to get myself back up north. So I want to be around my kids and that. You know, when I used to stay, play a game, go up the weekend. By the time I got home, that it was Saturday night. You know, only really had Sundays and I had to fly back down to London on Monday morning. So I, I thought, yeah, it's best I'll get myself back up north and, you know, um, be with my kids again. And originally, I, I should have gone to um, Blackburn. Back to Blackburn. I, I spoke to Sparky and huh? Sparky was adamant he was going to do the move and I was buzzing that the move was going to happen. I was going to go back to Blackburn. And then um, I remember I was on, on pre-season tour with Fulham. And it come out that Sparky had signed uh, Craig Bellamy. And I thought, yeah, okay, I understand that. I understand that, Craig Bellamy. Then I realized Sparky sent me out cold. I can't do the deal. I spent all the money on Craig Bellamy. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So when the Man City thing came out, I thought about it. I spoke to a few people about it. But then I turned and said to myself, this is about my kids now, about the family. Me, I'm, I'm not happy being here by myself. Um, I miss my kids. I'll have to take it on the chin, you know. Uh, yeah, I know I played Manchester United. I mean, people perceive me as whatever they perceive me as Manchester United. But sometimes, you know, loyalties have to get divided for family reasons. Mm. And my, 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 my children mean the world to me. So that, that was the decision behind that. You know, and in the end, it, it worked out well. It worked out well for me. I went there, I scored goals. You know, never, I believe, I've never tarnished uh, the situation with Manchester United fans. Yeah. Many fans don't even talk about it. So I turn around and say to myself, you know, so I, I, I dodged the bullet thing. Yeah. So why why then leave? Because you were doing well at City. I think it was, was it Portsmouth next? Yeah, I, I, I was sold at Harry, Harry's dream. <laughs> Oh man, if, if, if there's one thing I would change in my career, I, I would never ever take up a Harry's dream. Um, I, I was there, and in, in my mind, I was, I said, get to 35, I'm, I'm done, I have to retire and just ride off to, into the wind. I, I, I'd imagine would have disappeared and no one know where I was. I, I was that was my, all my intention. So I was on holiday one year with my family. And Harry was in the same hotel, and 
you know, we got talking, whatever. And he said, no, you know what Harry's like? I said, yeah, he goes, um, do you fancy kind of pool? Said, I'm more than happy where I am. My, my family's happy and whatever. Nah, nah, okay. So, yeah, I'll, I'll look after you. I'll, I'll give you a two-year deal. And I'm saying to myself, that two-year deal takes me to the age I want to retire. Mm, I, I'll consider it. Let me get back to England. And let me see if I can get another year out of Manchester City. You know, if I get another year out of Manchester City, I'm not going anyway. So that, there's my bit of leverage there. So I'm trying to use it as leverage the Portsmouth thing again with Manchester City to get an, another year. At the time, Manchester City had a fellow work for him. He now works at Fulham, I think he was still there. Alistair McIntosh. Mm. He was um, the man who did all of the contracts and that at Manchester City. Oh my God, was he hard work. Danny Murphy said the same thing. There you go. Oh, hard, hard work. I sort of believe the money belonged to him. Because <laughs> you know? all, all, all I wanted was another year, same money, considering Portsmouth were offering more money, more bonuses, everything. Yeah, I'm saying myself, all I want is another year. If you give me another year, same money, I'm not going anywhere. Now I can't do it. Can't do it. It's the same thing, it's the same. No, I can't do it. Can't do it. So, Indian, I said, No, sod this. I've been guaranteed two years at my age to finish at the age I want to finish at. You're haggling, well, we're not haggling. You're turning me down flat and giving me another year. I was your top goal scorer before I got injured. Yeah. And yeah, so I said, No, sod it. I said that Harry, you know, okay, we, we do the deal. The craziest thing, after all that, and this is what I don't understand, after all that, Man City got me on a free. And end up making 500 grand on me when I saw him as a horseman. He told me, I said, what a nonsense. Mm. Eh? The same way I come there on a free, let me go on a free. But now you're prepared to take 500 grand for me. Yeah. And all you have to do is give me another year. And then when I lead the, the struggle of school goals, so he turns and says, what is going on there? But that, that's how I ended up going to go into Portsmouth. I got sold a pipe dream by Harry West saying, yeah, you get games, you play games. I, I never kicked a ball there. Never yeah. ever kicked the ball, and that, that really pissed me off. I'd gone there, never kicked the ball, and basically I wasted a year. Yeah, I, I wasted a year of my career. I took my kids out of school you know, to move down there, brought a house down there, did all the right things, you know. And I can look back and so I really regret that due to the fact that my kids were struggling as well. They were struggling at the new school, obviously being up north for so long. Struggling at the new school, couldn't really make friends, uncomfortable there. And I had that as well in the back of my mind that I can't believe I've done that to my kids or whatever, what he's done to me. So every, everything then, I was absolutely fuming, fuming that things didn't go the way I would have liked them to have gone. Right. Is that a manager you, you buried the hatchet with or do you hold a grudge against Harry for that? No, I don't. I don't hold any grudges against Harry. Harry's Harry. Mm. Harry's Harry. Harry will tell you one thing today and say to you tomorrow, I didn't say it. That's Harry. He's, he's the kind of individual that you turn and say, so I ain't going to hold a grudge against you. You are you. I mean, you, you turn around and say the sky's blue one day and then it's grey the day after, but the sky's exactly the same colour. So you, for me personally, I... I can't get upset with people like that because I know what those kind of people are. So, me, it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> and you ended up signing off with a, with a hat trick for Burnley, didn't you? Against QPR. That was a, 
kind of nice finish. I know you had a couple of games after that, but that was a, a nice last hurrah after what you'd suffered at Portsmouth. Yeah, that, that, that was good. Got let down there in the end, Owen Corn. Uh, he let me down, you know. He said, right, we'll do well. I signed at the end of the season and then I got myself a few goals and did what I enjoyed it. Really good set of lads, you know. And then, I mean, they got promoted or they got promoted here after or whatever it was. And he said, right, I'll look after you in the summer. Kai Boschman. But, but, but by then, I, I knew what football was all about. You, know, you get to that age, you're not a football. One, one person says one thing um, and does another thing. I remember when I was at Portsmouth and I was trying to get myself out on loan because I wasn't playing. And then I spoke to David Moyes and David Moyes' salesmanship. I turned around and said to myself, not being disrespectful, why would I want to play, f- play for you at Everton if that's the deal? I remember him saying to me, right, um, I want to come along for thought, yeah, brilliant. You know, Everton, back up north, my family, whatever. Just to let you know, it's only alone. What do you mean? Yeah, you can come play up front with AJ. He'll do all you're running for you. You just get in the box and score goals. So if I've got 15 goals at the end of the season, you'll still turn around and say, thank you very much. It's just alone. So I said, nah, 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 nah. come on, man. You can't use and abuse an individual like that. Mm-hmm. Especially someone at my age who knows what he's doing. So that's that's why I, I turned that loan down to go to Everton and ended up going to um, Birmingham on loan with uh, Brucey. Right, OK. So there was no thoughts at the end of that final season you had about trying to get another contract somewhere, go abroad or whatever. That's it, you were done at that, that time. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was done. I, yeah, I, I wanted to play on a little bit more. But like I said, my, my time at Nottingham Forest, I, I don't even think about it. I, I, was, I totally erased that because... The way the football club was run, uh, I didn't like. And that's when I knew the mentality of the players was starting to change. You know, so that was a good time to turn and say, thank you very much, I'm, I'm out of it. Because the mentality start really changed between generation of players. I don't know if it was just that level or the younger generation coming through. I mean, you get beat three or four nil on a Saturday afternoon. And you'd be right about, about going out that evening and what you're going to do that evening. And I was like, whoa, you just lost 4 0, by the way. And you're talking about what you're going to do tonight and who you're going to see and what. How about staying indoors and having a look at yourself and say to yourself, I ain't going out tonight? But it changed. It's like the feeling wasn't the same. And like I said, I don't know if it was at that level, uh, championship level. But I knew if it's Premier League, yeah, and the teams I played in the Premier League, and you, you just got your asses felt 4 0 or whatever it was, and you didn't play particularly well, you're not talking about going out on a Saturday night. You're talking about trying to address the problem. So I knew then I had to hold my hands out and call it quits. Yeah, yeah. Just finally, in terms of your career, how do you look back on your England time? Do you think you were really unlucky? Playing when there were an incredible amount of top English strikers, or do you categorically think that you should have had more chances? Uh, I know I should have had more chances. Mm. And I always say to people now, politics is not just in politics. Politics is in football as well. Uh, 15 caps, you say, you only got 15 caps. And, oh, you, you only got one goal. Yeah, I've got 15 caps. Majority of those were substitute appearances. I played for about five different managers, I think it was. Yep. Glenn, Sven, 
Venables, Wilkerson, Keegan, five managers. Um, it was never meant to be from David Davis spoke to Kevin Keegan at Maiden Castle, now that Newcastle, and was telling Kevin every reason why Terry didn't want to put me in the England squad. And I'm sat there and I listened to the conversation. I'm saying, I was like, well, well I think I was a country top goal squad at the time as well. Yeah, I'm struggling with like um, my calves and that. But I'm actually listening to a conversation, you telling my manager why I'm not getting in the England squad. When it should be, you should tell the manager why I'm in the England squad. So he's one of those ones. You know, this, this is not meant to be. So I've, I've always looked at it then and said to myself, from that day, you knew. Your English was a non-starter from day one. What on earth were the reasons? I'm curious. Uh, the, the reasons were that I was Indian, you know, because I was struggling with an injury and, you know, you're struggling with an injury, not match fit and all this kind of shenanigans. You know, he's like, well, I'm still playing for New Yeah, I'm not training every day, but I'm still playing for Newcastle, still making a goal on a Saturday afternoon or whatever. But this is the way you're talking. And then when he come out, you know, I remember Terry coming out and saying, Give out caps like confetti and things like that. Confetti? I'm a country's top goal scorer. Now, if you're turning around and saying you're the country's top goal scorer, yeah, if I give you a cap, it's like, come on, man, I could have given anyone a cap. That's what basically saying. It. That's what confetti is. Anyone can have it. I'm turning around and saying, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a bit much, though. It's a bit much because I deserve to be involved in, in the England squad. Mm. Without any question whatsoever, I think we said it before, 187 Premier League goals, and I think only one of them was a penalty. That's right, yeah. Who would have been your best England partner, do you think, looking? I, I, I don't know. It's, this, this debate will always roll on. England have had an abundance of fantastic players. But for me, every manager has always seemed to bow to pressure of not playing the best players for that best game. For that game, I'm going to have to change things. Yeah, I might have to leave out a couple of my best players, but I think this team is the best team to go about things. Mm. England get caught up in that nonsense, saying, oh, no, no, we've always got to play the same players, same players, same players. And I have this conversation quite a bit. If you look at some of the other teams that have won major tournaments, they don't mind leaving that one of their big names or two of their big names to bring that individual they think He suits this game or whatever. That's the way it should be. That's why it's supposed to be a squad of 22 or 24 players. Yeah. Not just, oh, yeah, I've got 22 or 24 players, but these are my 11 that start the same game. Yeah. But if that's the case, leave the rest of the players at home. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you just deal with those 11. It's like you only bring the rest of the players to train. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And I think that's where Gareth's got it right now. If Gareth's more than prepared, it's okay, not a problem. Man. Sterling won't play if they are playing uh, Sancho or Ali won't play, I'll play Dyer or whatever. That's what England and all the rest of the nations are supposed to be. Not like the club situation, which it was when I was playing. You already knew the England team. Mm. It didn't matter what you did, you already knew the England team for the midweek friendly or international team. You always knew it. Yeah. Things well, never change. Well, just to highlight that point, they showed the England-Germany Euro 96 semi-final again the other day. I didn't realise Terry Venables did not make a single substitution in 120 minutes. There you go. 
there you go. And yeah. ultimately, every game, especially a game like that, some say you've got to freshen it up. Someone, oh. someone you've got to say, oh, well, he can bring a little something else. Maybe he can do this. So that, that tells you. Do you think if you've gone a year without scoring for England from 1995 going into the build-up of Euro 96, Terry Venables would have kept faith with you like he did Shearer? No. 100% not. 100% not. Uh, if, if, if you did a poll on this, yeah, the answer would be no. If there's anybody else, no. No, and like you, like you already touched on, there's a hell of a lot of good centre forwards about, but it was all perceived not to be good enough to play. Yeah. You're only going to be good enough to play if you're given an opportunity. That's yeah. like anything in life. You've got to give someone an opportunity. Man, I'm not talking about, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give you like two games. Two games is nothing. Yeah. You need a run of games. You need obviously about, I don't know, five to ten games to beat that. Good. So, okay, yeah. Well, we give him a 10 game run and he's not good, or we give him a 10 game, look at him fly. Because yeah. I, I say to people when they ask me, like, oh, he's been playing for England, I say, play for England. I, I was playing Champions League football for Manchester United. Mm. And if you look at my record, Manchester United in Europe, no one could ever turn around and say he wasn't good enough to play international football. I was going to get better players in the, in the Champions League yeah. and scoring goals. So that, that, that is always my argument. Oh, I'd argue the same. I think Champions League football is the pinnacle now, isn't it? Yes, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Uh, well, just finally then, obviously, I know um, the last few years have been really tough health-wise, but you must be so proud of the Andy Cole Fund. And can you tell us more about how that helps people in terms of organ donation? Because I didn't realise, I never thought about the extra things involved with organ donation and the kind of mental health-related factors. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm delighted I've got any involved in that to be fair. Um, I had a conversation with Sandra maybe two two and a bit years ago and she said to me would you be prepared to get on board and obviously helping kidney research and that. I, I was going through a, a time in my life that I just about wanted to help myself. Mm. So I'm not sure if I wanted to help anybody. Mm. You know? But the more I thought about it and the more I spoke, I said, no, give it a go. Give it a go and, and see where you end up at. So then she mentioned, right, why don't we just try and do your own fund and we'll go from there. You can have your own input and so you can try and help people that have been in the same position as you. Mm. I said, yeah, let, let's go for it. Because I, I, I knew then what I was actually going And I, I never understood this illness. Now I still don't understand it. The mental torture you actually put yourself through is, is unbelievable. But no one actually knows why. We all feel the same. Mm. Mentally, we destroy ourselves. But can't get, give the answer. Well, no one can give us the answer to why this illness does this. Mm. So for me to get involved and speak about my experience, you know, and trying to help people to understand to the best of their ability what it is, you know, it's, it's been really enlightening for me. Mm. It saved my mind off a lot of other things as well. Mm. You know, I, I think I, I, I touched on it at the start. Being in lockdown for so long is giving that opportunity to focus and turn and say, you've actually done this, you've done that good or whatever. Yeah, I know things have been difficult. And you said yourself many times, 
I can't get through it. I can't get through it. But you have. Mm. I don't know how. But then people turn around and say, well, that tells you just how strong you are mentally. At the time, you don't feel very strong mentally because all you do is question yourself. Mm. So for, for me, personally, it's just about helping people, try to guide people, try to have that conversation, come out with things where a lot of people think, but what come out of, I'll come out and say, I, I, I don't really care, I'll come out and say the way I feel, you know, how I feel today or what yesterday was like. It's been, it's been a bit of a taboo in this illness. Mm. You know, if someone comes out and says, oh, I don't feel very good today or whatever, or today I don't, I don't want to be here. But people say, oh, you can't say things like that. Well, you don't know how I'm feeling. Mm. You know? And if you understood the way I'm feeling, and using my position, you must well turn around and say the same thing. So for me, I'm, I'm just trying to grow it. I'm trying to grow it and try to get people to understand that it's okay not to be okay. Yeah. Especially in this illness, it's definitely okay not to be okay. Definitely. I've always been uncomfortable with the way that people have said that footballers have to be role models. I've always thought, why, you know? But I think what you're doing here, what Marcus Rashford has done, changing governmental policy, you know, they were trying to starve poor kids, essentially. Yes. I think I think it's been absolutely incredible and, and unbelievably commendable. Uh, what did you think about Marcus's intervention? Very, very good. Uh, and even more so now due to social media, those guys have the platform to do it. Mm. Uh, if they didn't have a platform, it would be a hell of a lot harder for Marcus to change that legislation. Can you imagine if you try to do that with no Twitter or, mm. or um, IG? I mean, the government would be biting him off. Oh, nonsense, nonsense. You know, but they've got no, they've got no opportunity, they've got no chance. They have to do it. Mm. The people looking out to him and saying, oh, hello. All these kids are can't have school dinner or whatever. In the summer, they'll be... You, as a government, of course you've got to do something about it. Mm. You know? And what Marx has done brilliantly, he's highlighted that by saying, look, I've been in that position myself. No, no, if I've been in that position, I know what it feels like. So I want to try and help others not to be in that position. You know? And mm. that's commendable to him, his team, obviously his family as well, that he's been more than prepared to come out and talk about it. And, on, on, on the flip side, that, that's what I'm prepared to just come out and talk about it. I'm not, I'm not really fussed what people want to say. To say oh, yeah, but we've heard all this before. You, you most probably have. Mm. But no two days are the same. No, absolutely. And just finally then, football-wise, you had a taste getting back involved with Sol as striking coach at South End. What the situation with that is at the moment, you know, with Sol having left. But did you enjoy it and what aspirations have you got, if any? I, you know, I, I love it. I love it. I had this conversation with the wife last week. I, I I loved it. I mean, first and foremost, I love that soul believe that he could bring me in yeah. as one of his coaches, but bring me in as a friend as well, trusted, and know I do the right things and not try and like, mess anything up. You know, that's why I have so much respect for soul for giving that opportunity. Yeah. You no, know, I, I loved it due to the fact to be back on the grass. You know, getting involved in all the bank and all that, and you know, like I said being able to focus on something totally different. Mm. Uh, so, long term, like, like I said to Yorkie the other day, I said, "Look, I'll be brutally honest. If we start being given more opportunities as black and ethnic coaches, yeah, I, I would do my coaching badges. I would definitely say, you know, I'll crack and I'll do it." 
how we do it because I know people are going to be given the opportunity. But if we're going to talk about it and then six months, a year down the road in the same position, no, I won't do it because I'm not going to jump through hoops for no one. I mean, we've been talking about this for 20 years, haven't we? More opportunity for black coaches. You know, Keith Alexander was the, you know, who's dead now. He was the only black coach, black manager for a long, long time. Brian Dean went out to Norway, did a couple That's of right, yes. out there, did really well, came back, he couldn't get an interview. Uh, do you feel now, though, that we're at a pivotal point where things are going to change or have we been down this road before? I don't I think we are because I, I think now, What's gone on? It does not change it now. Everyone can turn around and say, you know, total lip service, all this Black Lives Matter stuff and all that nonsense, because no one's prepared to do anything. All you're prepared to do is wear a badge or whatever. Now, if it doesn't happen now, everyone can turn, turn around and say, it's never going to happen. Mm. And I think then you most always see how much. Black and ethnic minority coaches turn and say, not interested, not interested. We know we're never ever going to get the given the opportunity to coach at the highest level or to manage at all the highest level. Because ultimately, at some stage, you've got to turn and say, well, enough's enough. Well, do we need a Rooney rule then? Do we have to? No, that's a, that's a nonsense. Okay. That's, that's a nonsense. That, that, that's just like me talking to you now. Mm. And you turn and say, yeah, I've, I've ticked the box, I've spoken to Cody. Mm. Well, do you think he's good enough? No, he's not the individual we're looking for. Because mm. um, that, that's all that is. You know, it's a quota. So I, I can speak to five individuals. Uh, so long one of those is black you know, or ethnic minority, he might be the best candidate of the job. But you can tell us, no, I, I like this fellow because uh, he said this and I like the way he said it. Oh, is that what you're going to judge someone by? Mm. So I think, me personally, that's me. It's not a quota thing. It's supposed to be the best man for the job. Yeah. Not a quota. I need to speak to a black or ethnic minority cultural manager just to tick that box. But mm. knowing that I'm not going to do the job anyway, but I've, I've ticked the box. It, there's got to be more to it. Yeah. Well, I would like to think that we get into an aid situation where people who are going to be in boardrooms are more of our generation. I feel there's far, far, far less prejudice than maybe the previous generation. And maybe I'm blue sky thinking that things are going to change now. But, you know, it's difficult for me. I'm not living that experience. Yeah, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's a tough one because for everyone, there might be two of the same now. But when you talk about in boardrooms, people of our generation, you know, I'm not sure who is people of our generation, but ultimately it's still on people of older generation who have made their mind and, and set in their ways. Mm. The ideology is, is we're, not, we're not born racist. Mm. We are taught to dislike. Like greens. I don't like greens. Why not? Uh, I don't like the look of them. Well, do you taste them? No, no, I just don't like the look of them. No. I don't like fish. Why? It's fishy. Why have you tasted it? No, it's not fishy. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. You know, it's the yeah. same thing. We're not taught. Yeah? We learn and turn around and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what, yeah, I, I, I dislike. I mean, we, 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 we're, taught, we're taught to dislike. So we come into the world, we're pure. Kids, that's what I love about kids. 
when they're first born, pure. Yeah? When they get older, yeah, that's when they start getting distorted with, oh, he said, she said, oh, yeah, well, start forming an opinion because someone said, I'll do this or do that. So you start forming an opinion. Yeah. That's the world we live in now. Mm. You know, I, I was, I mean, I'm not the only one, but we are hoping that, you know, once we start to come out of the pandemic, you know, people start a few things in a totally different way and whatever. When we're coming out of it, no. You know, it's just like the, the pub's open. You know, the pub's open and everyone's running down the pub like, there's a new phenomenon in, in town. It's called a pub. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So yeah, so that's 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 our stubbornness. I mean, the, the pub. I'm, I'm looking at clips and people down the pub and then the loading up the table with like, I don't know five, ten pints. You turn and say, "So whoa, whoa, one minute, one minute." You went down your local off license or Tesco or whatever. You can buy exactly the same thing. So what is it? I mean, why is everyone running down the pub like we've invented this new phenomenon? It's called a pub, yeah. And if everyone goes down there, go down there. You drink as much as you can, yeah, as quick as you can, and then get lamps. What's, come on, we're supposed to be better than that now. Yeah. You know? Well, people's perceptions are, oh, I've got to go down the pub. No, nah, nah, nah. in the global pandemic, what's wrong with you? Yeah. It is what it is. Oh, it's madness. Now I live in Brighton, seeing them all go down the beaches over bank holiday. I'm like, what on earth's going on? But yeah, like I say, it's the world we live in. Well, just finally then, everything works out well and you get back into football. Well, you are into football. Can you see yourself, hopefully, in a few years' time? Would you stick to striking coaching or would you want to go higher than that? No, I don't want to go any higher than that. Mm. No, I, I think I've, I've, I've enjoyed the role that I'm doing. You know, I, I, I've loved and I will continue to love working with so as long as he wants me to work with him. Yeah. You know, but sometimes I even say to him, I've known you a long time, but sometimes, man, you got to take it easy. You don't need to stress as much. Yeah. I look at him and say to myself, so he's younger than me. And this is great as hell. And I don't say to myself, and do you want to put yourself for that position? I mean, with your illness, would you know stress? Stress makes your illness worse. Mm. Why would you want to put so I say no? I'll enjoy doing my two to three days a week, you know, having a laugh and joke. But no, I know that I can step away and have those two, three days to myself. Yeah. You know, that's that's why I've enjoyed it as well, knowing that yeah, three days in, I can come out for three days and you know I can switch off from it. Sounds like the perfect work life balance to me, Andy. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm trying to get that. <laughs> oh, thank you ever so much. I mean, sorry I've taken up so much of your time, but I really enjoyed every second of that. That was brilliant. No problem. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. What a player and what a man. The third highest scorer in Premier League history with 187 goals, but only 15 England caps. Doesn't make sense, does it? Any comments, please get in touch by at Richard Lenton on Twitter. That's at Richard Lenton. And apologies for the echo on some of my questions. Andy was dialed in via an iPad and for some reason it caused that kind of echo chamber feel, but thankfully it was only on my audio. 
I've got episodes with the likes of Sean Davis, Danny Murphy, Emmanuel Petit and Rod Wallace to come over the coming weeks. So please subscribe to Footballers Lives wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get them straight away. And don't be shy in giving us a five-star review as that helps us get discovered. I'll see you next Monday. Footballers Lives was brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. www.psm-group.co.uk